and it was really really difficult I was having real trouble with the employer at the time they didn't understand that I could do something one day and not the other day because as we know ME fluctuates Welcome to the Silent Elephant Project podcast, where we have conversations with everyday people living with life-limiting health conditions. We are not claiming to be specialists, but we are offering a therapeutic space to build dialogue around marginalised health themes, giving you the opportunity to listen in. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Getting to Know ME series, where we hear from both specialists and those living with life-limiting condition. ME, short for myalgic encephalomyelitis. I'm Kondwani and I'll be your host. Today's story is from Evan, who also runs a blog called The Cornerstone for Thoughts. You'll hear about her diagnosis journey, her advocacy work on raising awareness of ME, and also touch on changes implemented in the NICE guidelines regarding ME treatment methods. NICE is short for National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. NICE guidelines are evidence-based recommendations for health and care in England. Please note, further in our conversation in this episode, we experienced technical issues, which we could not rectify all of them, but were able to still continue with our conversation, hence the difference in the audio quality. Hello, so I'm Evan, everyone calls me Ev. I have lived with ME for the last four years and I work in marketing and communications for my day job. I'm lucky to be able to work with my long-term health condition but as with all adjustments are needed and I have to manage my condition on a daily basis but I think that comes with the territory really. I'm 25 and I live just in the southeast of England with my family and two dogs. Oh amazing, family and two dogs. What What are the names of your dogs? Norman and Frank. So Evan, what's been like for you having ME? You know, what's your diagnosis story and what age were you first diagnosed? When I think about my ME journey, I think it probably would have started a year before the investigations from the hospital ever started. I started uni in 2014 and a year into uni, I developed like most uni students do, the freshers flu in the first week, was quite poorly and didn't know was absolutely fine afterwards and a few months after the bug I developed a bit of an intolerancy to gluten was finding that every time I'd ate bread or wheat I was in absolute agony with IBS and also fatigue I was absolutely exhausted I went to the doctors and they told me that I had nothing wrong it was just maybe a sensitivity in IBS went and had some blood tests because that's what happens when you're getting screened for celiac disease which is an autoimmune response to gluten went and had the blood tests done and they came back absolutely fine they said oh you might you I think you're low on b12 so they put me on some prescriptive b12 vitamins was absolutely fine most of that year and then was absolutely fully moving forward in 2016 had no real issues other than having IBS so I just put it down to every time I'd have a flare-up I blamed it on IBS and then 2017 started and I graduated from uni and I started a job in the city and I live probably about an hour in ish out of London so I was traveling to and from London 
and I started to develop a bit of numbness in my leg, thinking, oh, it's the heat, because it was when we were really hot a few years ago, and was fine, no problems at all, but I was getting really, really tired. I was waking up at half five, feeling like I hadn't had any sleep. I was going to bed earlier and earlier every night to try and combat it. I was being told, well, continue going to the gym, because I was in the gym all the time before I got poorly. And again, the B12 deficiency came up. Originally, they said it was self-esteem, which was a really weird label for it. Then got told to go and, then was said, oh, go and have your B12 injections. I think you need to, because your levels are really low. And after the first four, I still wasn't making any progress. It was not going anywhere. I was still a bit numb. I was having memory loss. I wasn't able to get my words out. I was absolutely exhausted to a point that just talking was too much and walking and doing anything. So I was signed off sick and I went to my GP because the other one had been labeling it as self-esteem or anything, basically avoiding any form of diagnosis. We saw our regular natural GP and he just said, I'm really concerned. I'm gonna forward you to a neurologist, but I think you need to be prepared for something to be diagnosed with, he said, because this isn't normal. And I think what's hard for me looking back was there were lots of things going on. And there was a lot of rumors that it could be just an anxiety thing, it was maybe a self-esteem. And I had the MRI tests, I had the EMGs, I had all of the tests that anyone would have done for any form of neurological illness and had the test come back clear and was told I had chronic fatigue syndrome. And at that point, the neurologist said, and I can quote her so vividly, because it's actually a year this week that I've been living with Emmy. She said to me, I'm gonna discharge you. I'm gonna send you back to your GP. You're gonna need to go and see a psychologist and you're just gonna have to work yourself back up to where you were before you got poorly. And I felt like my world had just come down because it wasn't a label. She couldn't give me anything to sort my numbness out. She couldn't give me anything to sort the fatigue out. And I was just discharged with no support, no anything. The GP looked at me and said, oh, well, you'll be fine then within three months because to him, he had no clue what chronic fatigue syndrome was. And I went back to work on a phased return and it was really, really difficult. I was having real trouble with the employer at the time. They didn't understand that I could do something one day and not the other day because as we know, ME fluctuates. Went back and on my way home on one occasion, I collapsed on a very busy rush hour train through sheer exhaustion and I think stress and panic attack. And I never went back and I was out of work from that point from a, for about three months. And it has taken wow. a real long time to manage the condition to get to a point where I'm at a moderate level to be able to do what I can on a almost container really. But I think the, the diagnosis story that I have, I feel like is reflected in a lot of ME patients. I think when I start talking to patients, everyone gets told that they think that they're GP thinks it's something more serious they get sent to a neurologist and the neurologist doesn't actually know what it is because as we know ME is a neurological condition but neurologists don't really want to be diagnosing it they don't want anything to do with it I think the experience I've had with neurologists in the last four years most of them would rather not see you if you've got a chronic fatigue label on your medical record they just want you out the door and it is hard because looking at me there's nothing wrong people say oh but you look absolutely fine but you're not and something I'm very 
I get very angry about, and I think this is probably felt for a lot of people listening to this, is a normal test result is what you what you want for most things. But when you have a chronic illness and you're receiving a normal test result and your GP or your doctor that's referred you looks at you and says, I'm really pleased to let you know the test came back clear. They're happy, but you're still sat, but what's wrong with me? I have got no idea why I'm still unable to do something. I'm unable to know why. And we still don't have a diagnostic criteria to say why you get ME and why someone else doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of parallels with my own experience as well. Being diagnosed, I was also at uni and obviously going through different GPs, that in itself was telling because I was there pretty much confused. Like, why then do I keep on struggling? And it's almost like you begin to question yourself, you know, is am I making it up? But actually you're not because whenever they whenever they run tests they'll still pick on something and they'll be like right something is not right here something is not right here and unfortunately i met the right gp and i like how you say that the right gp home was like actually i think there's something to this and then sent me to different specialists and hospitals obviously and then fortunately it was official you know that was in the span of six to eight months i think or six to twelve months but within that range and then i was officially diagnosed as having me cfs I think what's saddest is I recently went back to a hospital with some nerve problems I'm having and I was speaking to the guy that was doing my nerve conduction studies and he was the first neurologically trained professional who was very much not dismissive of chronic fatigue but he said to me it isn't he said but it isn't ME I said why do you not think it's ME and I had this conversation and he said to me because we don't know enough about it to give you any type of label he said chronic fatigue syndrome to him was created as a label for a group of symptoms he said because our diagnostic of chronic fatigue syndrome doesn't give you any support or treatment plan or specific medication that's going to give you some form of normality back and when he said that it was the very first time i'd ever heard somebody be really open with me and really open and honest with me about the whole situation so as much as I hate to say it I do think there's not enough training for a medical professional to truly get to the bottom of chronic fatigue to be able to say to a patient this is what you're living with this is what you can do to mitigate and make it slightly better for you yeah no that's a very good point and that's that's actually interesting because to be told that there's so much truth to it but at the same time it gets you to reflect on how one complex the situation is but then two you begin to question then what direction am i going to go with because you still have to manage the illness yourself and then then you have to then start like taking it backwards towards yourself and then you hope that those around you can not just believe you but then be there to support you with how you're feeling with how you're trying to manage and you know tick through each and every hour of the day it's hard because the label of chronic fatigue syndrome and I've written about this before but chronic fatigue doesn't summarize a hell of a lot of patients problems I think if there was a big survey on what everyone's symptoms look like the fatigue is the most common but it doesn't affect people Mm. necessarily as the worst symptom I know a hell of a lot of people that live with daily fatigue and they all say chronic fatigue doesn't touch the surface for the variety of symptoms that I have And they said, and that's why there needs to be some investigations and there needs to be some research to tell us why we still call it chronic fatigue syndrome if you're in a medical setting. 
because we know that it is ME because it covers a hell of a lot more symptoms than chronic fatigue syndrome does. I find chronic fatigue yeah. syndrome quite insulting because my symptoms are not just that. They're not limited to being fatigued and being tired. They're a collective of symptoms that are very unbearable to live with. Absolutely. And I have a tendency of saying ME-CFS just so that when people understand the CFS bit, I can then have more room to explain further that it's not exactly the CFS by itself, but they just use the terminology. Hence, I tend to group them together. But more than anything else, it's back to that thing, uh, having a conversation with people. And the classic one is when you say ME and then somebody assumes MS. Then I'm like, oh, no, 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 it's different. <laughs> but that's a whole kind of worms and uh, a full episode for, for, you know, we can dedicate that episode for another day. But yeah, so touching on you having ME, how does your average day go? I've never been a morning person, so I can't necessarily blame ME for, for that. However, that doesn't mean the mornings are easier or worse, because they are worse. And I think for me, the pandemic really brought home to me the benefit of working from home to make sure that my commute time now is zero. My commute is down going downstairs. So that is a hell of a lot better than where I would have been four years ago because I did I don't have to commute anywhere now so I get up I always have breakfast and some caffeine I know caffeine is never the one thing to swear by but it does give you that that buzz I try and move my body I'm lucky that I do have Emmy on a mild to moderate level I'm not severe and I'm very much honest about that like you, like me, we're very different with what we have with our ME symptoms. So I never want to make an assumption that everyone looks like me or everyone looks like you or everyone, because we know this is a really wide spectrum condition. So I work nine till four most days in my day job. And then the evenings are usually dedicated to resting. I like going to yoga and aqua aerobics. That's my thing at the moment. Um, but for me, it's about getting into a routine and having those rest breaks. I think living with an ME has made me a little bit more aware of my time and my energy use so I'm thinking okay if I'm doing this today I need to make sure I do this tomorrow and have a rest part and make sure that I dedicate some time to resting. Something I learned really quickly was living with chronic fatigue means that things like talking, having conversations can be quite tiring so when I say rest I mean not talking which is a relief for most of the people I live with so I would prefer if I'm resting to relax and that, whether that be having a bath or watching something on the telly, that for me is the way that I rest. And some people say, oh, but you're only coming for coffee. That is resting. I'm like, it isn't. If I'm moving and I'm talking and I'm moving my lips, that's energy use. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, the spoon theory. Yes. Where you've got a certain number of spoons, which represents energy levels pretty much. So then you have to decide when I use that final one or the last two when i've got i don't know 12 hours of the day left what's then gonna happen so 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 the, all those priorities and pacing kind of strategies you're then trying to employ and like you say it's all about educating people isn't it resting is different from resting as i would say when i was normal yeah or for the normal or for the normal airboard person if you know what i mean putting things into into context it's very very important yeah so what symptoms do you experience most for me, at the moment, I'm living with peripheral neuropathy, which is a form of nerve damage. And that started when I was diagnosed with ME, but it sort of went into remission and I never really had any symptoms. 
it re-flared up last May. So that makes up a hell of a lot of my symptoms at the moment. But on an ME focused, it is of course fatigue. That's an obvious one. But I also live with a lot of memory loss. My memory is really bad. It's not what it used to be. My family side, I have select memory. I agree, because there are things I can remember clear as day. I sometimes stutter my words, which can be really concerning at certain occasions when I do stutter because people around me are thinking I'm going insane, but I live with what I live with. And I think just that met that cognitive brain fog. The brain fog is really dementing. That is really, really difficult. I have muscle weakness and so my leg a lot of the time gives way, but that's because of the nerve situation I'm living with. IBS, I found out that's to do with ME, which I never realised. And I do have a gluten sensitivity, which obviously started this whole bunch of fun and games. So it's, there are lots of symptoms, but something I've learned with ME is that when you develop any form of new symptom, it suddenly fits the umbrella very well. The ME umbrella is like a, a pub garden umbrella that it fits so many people around because it has so many symptoms that are so varying, but can funnily enough come as an ME symptom. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. If there was one word, you tell somebody with regards to Emmy, what would it be? It's sad because there are going to be a lot of people that come in from long COVID that get diagnosed with Emmy or get a chronic fatigue label. And something that I keep telling people is listen to your body, which I know is three. But it, there is a lot of listening to your own body. And I think as humans and as society teaches us, we are all told to do as much as we can. I was speaking to somebody earlier about the line, no pain, no gain. That line is very, very outdated now because we live in a society where a lot of people are living with chronic pain. And so that line is no longer suitable for a lot of the population. But we all live in a very ableist society that doesn't understand that chronic illness does reduce your energy capacity. You're not the same person when you get diagnosed. So you have to listen to your body and not have society or what you think you should be doing as a guide if you feel like you're you can't do something you need to listen to yourself and go okay i need to do what's right for me it's probably that sums up the one word you're looking for being selfish i hate to say it but me has made me really selfish and i have to be selfish to be able to manage my condition because i can't afford to have another crash because it can just be devastating because it has so so many repercussions yeah, that's powerful. It's, it's a similar uh, situation with myself where I've had to learn how to strictly prioritize myself and the time and commitment pretty much. I have to things and people. And many times I just have to turn things down. It's because I just have to think of, okay, how am I feeling? How will I be feeling tomorrow and the following two days? Because again, you might, ex you might have a good time today, but then you feel the full effects in two days time, three days time. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And I think that's what I learned quite early on when I remember a few years after I got diagnosed I went out for some drinks and had a night out with my friends and it was lovely and the hangover that I would have got pre-illness would have lasted just the day after but I was still reeling the effects of that night out on the Thursday and it just shows that hangovers and anything that's huge for any normal person is massive for somebody living with a chronic illness because it then affects them for weeks and weeks and weeks afterwards you know we were seeing that from vaccines as well people are having their covid vaccine and have like an immediate flare-up of symptoms and they're maybe feeling it the day after and that's 
that's just something that we have to live with as chronic illness patients. Yeah. So, you know, like if you had to, let's say, go for an event that you cannot turn down and you really want to be there, how do you manage your symptoms? Last May taught me a hell of a lot because I started using a walking aid when I used to go maybe to a shop or when I was working in an office because sometimes my balance was just too bad and I would just be falling over and it was terrible. And that is one thing I've learned about managing symptoms when it comes to events. I'm very lucky that I've learned what I need in certain occasions. So if it's a morning event, I've always stayed quite close to the event the night before, so I don't need to get up an hour early to get there. I always make sure if it's a family event that I have an empty day the day after to be able to rest in the morning and in the mid-afternoon and not need to be rushing. My weekends, I think, have become very prioritised. If I've got one thing in the diary, the rest of my life dictates around that event, just to make sure that I'm not reeling the effects of that event four days after. So there is a lot of prioritising. I think when it comes, if you have a CV dedicated to chronic illness, you tick a lot of boxes about prioritisation and workload. (laughs) (laughs) I like that, I like that. What do you miss doing before your diagnosis? Before my diagnosis, I look back and I'm thinking, wow, I was so busy. I remember somebody saying to me, oh, do you think it came from burning the candle at both ends? And I think, possibly. I was at uni and I was working a part-time job in retail and I was writing my blog that I do now anyway. And I was busy all the time. Every minute, if I look back, I was always having events. I was doing more than one thing a day. I'd be going shopping in the day and then maybe out in the evening. And then that just had to stop because I couldn't do it anymore. And that's the one thing I miss, is having the busy life and being able to fit into culture where it's, you're busy. As humans, when people say, how are you? We as humans just naturally go, yeah, I'm busy. Are you really? Because actually you look back and you think, wow, I was really busy. And I was at the gym all the time. I was getting to the gym at nine o'clock every morning and doing a two hour workout, whether it be spin, or a boxing class and I'd be doing that every single day and now it's twice a week at best and I'm still trying to get back into exercise in a safe way that's not going to cause more damage to my leg but I do miss that side of my life I look I always have a moment where I think back and I think wow if I could go back to just one day that all those years ago to be able to do what I used to be able to do would be amazing and it was hard because I was diagnosed after I graduated uni which was very very flexible and when you left uni you were entered into the world of work which was very different to uni as we all know. Obviously what we've talked about and everything else you've shared I'm very curious to you know to know what actually motivates you. For me it's funny because on a professional level, my career, my motivation has always stemmed back from watching Scandal on ABC a few years ago by Shonda Rhimes. Um, there was a character, Olivia Pope, who was a campaign fixer, communications worker, so she was inspired my career, fictional as she was. And I always wanted to be her in my career. For me now, living with a health condition, my motivation is that every time I speak about my experiences of the diagnosis, the the illness day to day, that I give some form of comfort for someone and help to move us forward because we are still years behind other chronic illnesses. We still don't understand why some patients receive an ME diagnosis and why others don't. And I think I remember listening to a podcast with Shah Victory and 
she was explaining how when she spoke about her multiple sclerosis diagnosis, she wanted to speak her truth. She wanted to be able to share that experience because I think for me, when I was being diagnosed, there was nothing out in the press, in the media, that was depicting ME in the extent that I was experiencing it. And as honest and as truthful and as com compassionate side of things. So for me, my motivation is to be an ally to somebody in the ME community to feel that I'm speaking their truth and I'm speaking my truth and my experience because if we don't, we're going to be, again, years behind other conditions. No, absolutely, you're right. And at the end of the day, you go through the process, you know, of having ME. And obviously, it's difficult for somebody who doesn't have, who doesn't have it, but yeah, uh, that's why we, we're talking about it. And you find that there's actually a lot of navigation you have to do because it's not just a simple this is it and that's because obviously with the lack of research and everything else that's going on now obviously as twisted as this sounds um covid is terrible but thanks to covid because of the long-term effects of long covid that people end up having it's kind of shed a light and brought me back to the table it um, has yeah and i i can remember sitting down at dinner and just before we all went into lockdown and i was in a pub with my dad and his partner at the time and they were talking about covid and i was saying at that time and i wish i'd recorded it because i could be a very rich person now and i actually said covid is a viral illness i said so this might give us some eye-opener about me i said because thousands will live with me or be diagnosed with me because of covid and before you know it long covid is being mentioned and something that i've said over the last six months and my parents are sick of me saying it but i'll say it again have we listened to people with me five ten years ago we would have been in a much stronger and better position in dealing with long covid and we wouldn't be in a mess where patients are going to their gp with long covid-esque symptoms and their GP looks at them and goes, well, what do you want from me? Because I don't know what to do. But that's because they have had no time and energy, pardon the pun, to sit down with somebody with a limiting, energy-limiting condition such as ME, and they now don't know how to deal with post-viral illnesses as our long COVID is falling into. Oh, absolutely. That's a very good point. And building on that point, how do you see the future? We had the NICE guideline be published and it was amazing. There was so much positivity on social media that day. However, that is not the, that is not the end. We can't see the guideline as the end of the ME changes narrative. We've got a really great opportunity as content creators, writers, bloggers, whatever you want to call us, on shaping the future for somebody being diagnosed with ME in 15 years' time. Now, the NICE guideline has, yes, given us the removal of get which i think is long overdue but it doesn't mean that there are going to be some doctors and some physicians that do believe in the power of exercise to cure the me i call them the joe wicks of the medical community i can remember joe wicks saying exercise fixes everything and i remember writing an article saying this isn't the truth for chronic illnesses and we have to stop assuming that exercise is going to fix everyone's problems because for an ME patient, it doesn't, and that's the complete opposite. And I think we are in a lot better position, but I would love to say in five years' time that when somebody says ME, it doesn't follow, is that the one where you're tired all the time? You know, that would be for me an amazing thing that I can say what I have wrong, 
and somebody, whether it be family, friend, colleague, says, isn't that the one where you're tired all the time? Because I'd love us to be five years ahead of us and being able to acknowledge experiences and having nice guidelines is a bit of a change for something. Imagine how different it would be for a hell of a lot of people that their ME wasn't just being labelled as being tired. And I think the guideline is the start for that and we can start making changes. I'm aware from social media that a lot of people are bringing forward that their NHS trust or their private medical centre are still trying to force down people's throats a get model, whether it be graded activity management, rehab and exercise plan. You know, we are we are making progress, but there does need to be a realignment in the medical community where they sit down and they start understanding that yes, ME exists, chronic fatigue, yes, exists. It doesn't need to be cured with exercise and CBT. It's not a mental condition. It's a neurological condition that is not fixed by meditation and CBT as much as somebody wants to say it will do to get you off their books. That's lots of good points that you've highlighted and um, it would be interesting to see how further improvements, if any, that will come from you know the NICE guidelines in the next coming years. The NICE guideline, I think, is the start and it's for definite, but I think that has only come from a lot of push from a lot of charities, but also the fact that with long COVID, is having such a similarity. I think there was an article that was re- listing all of the long COVID symptoms. And when you compared them to the ME symptoms, there was such an astonishing comparison. And you're thinking, and this is what we're talking about when there's so much crossover, but the physicians don't want to look at that because it doesn't fit with their idea of that they could just treat us with exercise plans and CBT. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember having a conversation with my family members. I was highlighting the fact that, you know, given long COVID and the the symptoms that, you know, that comes with it and the similarities with ME, I was highlighting the fact that there'll be a lot more people now struggling to be returned to work or having a normal, meaningful day-to-day life. So what does that then mean on the grand scheme of things? It means as a nation, we are going to struggle. I could only see accelerated form of research. Now, I knew it's going to be more of long COVID because from the get-go, everybody knows it's because of COVID. Whereas with ME, there hasn't been that uh, full-on investigation to try and pinpoint exactly what triggers you know X, Y, and Z. You get my point. Now, obviously, right now, it's great to see some of the research and positive outcomes from the long COVID perspectives. This can only breed much more hope for people with ME. And hopefully that can help, again, prevent a lot more, a larger population to struggle on the national scale. I really hope it does. I really hope that we start understanding ME patients because, as I said, had we done that 15 years ago, people experiencing these long COVID symptoms might be getting better support from their physicians, whether it be their GP or a specialist. I can remember when I took my current relapse to my GP and he actually was very different. He approached the conversation different and he didn't try and blame it on something else. But that was because of long COVID and he mentioned it. And I said, do you not realize that long COVID has played a huge part in you understanding ME and post-viral conditions a hell of a lot more because of long COVID? There are thousands going into their GP saying I've got all these problems but I don't know what to do and 
they're having problems returning to work because of their absence records. They're struggling to return to their personal life, whether it be seeing their friends and family or having parties because they do not know what has happened to them and why they've been affected by COVID in the way they have. And I think to a certain degree, we've we've spent a lot of energy on what COVID does to you when you have it in those two weeks, three weeks. But we don't look at the people that have had it on a milder level but are still living with the symptoms maybe six months after they had COVID. But that is a completely different story in itself. But if we go back to the ME story, the the ME factor, well, actually, what do we know about ME? Why do people get their symptoms? Why does somebody else not? How did it cause? Why did it start? We all know that a lot of us had that viral infection of something and then maybe a year down the line they've not never never recovered and they still reel the symptoms of it but you know we are in a better position than we possibly would have been a few years back but until we start changing narratives as physicians we're never going to make that advance you know i'd love to be able to type in the word fatigue on google and not get the word exercise come up as one of the treatments or the ways of overcoming it because we know that fatigue doesn't fix by exercising. I get really frustrated when I say to somebody that I live with fatigue or that I'm tired and they say, oh, have you gone and done a run yet? Or have you gone power walking? And they're like, no, because I have fatigue. That's not going to improve it. But that's because society tells us if you're tired, exercise sets you free. Don't work like that. Well said, well said. Building on that and reflecting, obviously, on your journey um, and where you're at at the moment, (laughs) uh, what support systems do you have in place? I'm lucky that I have a really supportive, like, immediate family and friends and partner. But it doesn't mean that I've not had my fair share of arguments with family members over the the way they worded something. Something I do have to reiterate on numerous occasions that nobody knows what it is like to live with me but the worst thing you can do in my opinion is say to somebody oh but so and so has it worse than you because i get really frustrated when a family member will say oh have you heard so and so they've got xyz and then they say oh but at least you haven't got that and you're like but my struggle is my struggle whether someone else has got something nine times worse than me we all have our own battles we're all rising a wave but we're all in different boats some of us are in a cardboard box and the others are in a yacht you know there are different boats that were sailing the storming together but for me i had the cbt that is recommended and i described cbt to a lot of patients as though that you've had your leg amputated and a physician goes here's a plaster thanks you've soaked up the residue of blood but you're not dealing with the problem that's there so a year after having that cbt and noticing that i was still not dealing with the diagnosis i invested in having a therapist i've seen her for the last 18 months and i think for me i've always benefited from talking to somebody on a basis of who's not living with me day to day so i can have an objective opinion so i see her and i have a sports massager that i have twice a month again it's all private it's all on paid and they are brilliant they understand they understand my pain they understand what i'm dealing with so that's the way I deal with it. I take a lot of supplements because I'm B12 deficient, so I have injections on the supplements. But vitamin D3 is really useful for me because, as we know, it gets darker in the evenings now, and so you're not having as much sunlight, and, and that can cause a really big factor. So I take that. 
Magnesium is really good for sleep. I am not medically trained, so to anyone listening to this, please do your own research, please see your GP. And, you know, now I live predominantly wheat gluten-free just to alleviate some of the IBS and the induced symptoms because of it. But I think something I've really benefited from is being open. Don't close up. Speak about it. Speak about your problems. I do get frustrated by that my current neurologist keeps saying, I'll go to a pain clinic. And I said to him, do you want to go to a pain clinic? And he said, but why does that matter? I'm like, but if you knew the extent of why so many people go and come back more damaged, you wouldn't recommend it. I said, and that's what's really frustrating is that the places that medical professionals want you to go down are not necessarily going to help because they they sometimes have a, a, a opposite effect in the patient and comes out worse from what they've had from that physician. So for me, it's a definite feeling of, well, I've got to do the things that make me better. But a lot of it comes from pacing and resting, having the massage regularly and also having a therapist because stress will always make a huge impact on your physical health, whether people want it or not, it does. So having that person to talk to and talk through the problems and talk through the week is amazing. And I think if anyone can afford to have that person-centered therapist, go for it because it can make a huge difference. You know, and I always say to people, how would I feel if I didn't have that person to speak to on a regular? Wow, there's just so much you've unpacked there. So what would you say to your younger self then? From my younger self, and I still need telling this all the time, is rest and don't feel guilty about resting. I think we've all been accustomed to being busy. You know, whenever you ask somebody at work how they are, I'm busy. Okay, thank you. It doesn't actually solve anything. So for me now, I really wish that I'd learned to know how to rest and not feel guilty for resting, not feel guilty about having a nap or saying no. I think I'm still trying to teach my older self that, but saying no when you can't do something, but you feel like you have to say yes, I think I'm a bit of a people pleaser. But now I'm starting to do things that I physically can do, which is saying no to going out and doing a walk or doing something I know is gonna push me back and is too busy in that day. Resting is sometimes the best thing you can do and it's, about listening to your body as we touched on earlier about how do you deal with it, you know, and what would you say is one word or three, listen to your body, rest and say no to things. Wow, powerful. What improvements do you think, if any, are needed in the care system and public knowledge of ME CFS? I have said this for a long, long time. ME hasn't got a face. You don't know what ME looks like, you know, it isn't. I think whenever you think of any other condition, people do have a stereotype or a mind. ME doesn't, and I think that's something that is still really unknown. There is such a wide spectrum of ME patients. We have the person that gets ME or chronic fatigue syndrome after their viral infection, and they're made fine. don't know why, but they recover, and then they can say they've had it, and they go away, and they're the poster boy of CFS for the NHS. And that's fine. That's great. But we also have people that live with it on a mild to moderate end, so they do something and they pay for it days later. Or we have the patients that are so severe that they cannot move from their bed. They are bed bound and they are tube fed. They cannot open their curtains. They cannot open their eyes. They cannot have stimulants. 
but that end isn't spoken about enough. The mild to moderate end isn't spoken about, and the middle ground, which is where somebody just cannot do what they would have done four years ago without a carer. And, you know, I'm fully aware that lots of ME patients are trying to claim a form of disability allowance or personal independence, but they're not receiving it because they're not, they don't look ill enough. They don't look disabled enough. They're not my words, they're some of the words I've read on the social. And it's really sad really sad that as a society ME is labelled as a disability under the Equalities Act it's known as a neurological condition by the World Health Organisation but society still doesn't understand it despite those labels and those categories that they have. We are still finding ME as a mental condition by lots of physicians. If it was seen as a physical condition I wonder whether neurologists would continue to say to their patients I'm going to refer you to a psychologist because you don't say that when somebody's dealing with arthritis. You deal with them through pain management, but we get told, well, go see your psychologist. They'll be able to put you on some CBT. And I think that's why a lot of people struggle with the ME diagnosis because they, and I felt this, but I'm not mentally unwell, doctor. Oh, no, 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 no. But they want to give you that because it gets them off your your books and you don't want to take their medication. So. ME for that side of, I'd really love to change the medical platform. I'd love for society to stop pouncing on me with multi-level marketing schemes. You know, I get told, oh, you could sell this. I'm like, no, it's not going to cure my ME. It's hard. I do feel like living with ME, I'm banging my head against a wall constantly with family, with friends sometimes, because they, something I think ME does, and this is something that I'm sure you can touch on and some of your listeners will, ME is a fluctuating condition and I think that's what I've had to learn to deal with and explain to family and friends a lot, which is, yes, I was fine yesterday or I was fine two days ago, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to be fine after it tomorrow. And, you know, because I was told once, how can you do this but you can't do that? And that is the most insulting thing for me, I think, because I know that I've had some days where I've been able to walk 5k and feel amazing and then the day after I cannot move and I'm walking around unable to find my balance and walk again and I'm having a tremor you know it's it's really difficult to try and get through to people that you're living with a condition that fluctuates and so it doesn't have a set day you know your ME doesn't work on a shift pattern it's not going to say oh I'm clocking on at nine o'clock I'll see you there it comes out the blue, <laughs> like the ME monster. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I always say every day is different. So, you know, um, I can do all the planning that I want, but I know I have to be very, very flexible. And I know, like today, for example, we're able to pull off this interview because it so happens that, you know, in our flexibility that we're able to pull it off. And that's because we're just able to. If, let's say, I had terrible brain fog or you did, would have had to rearrange last minute. And that's just the nature of our existence pretty much and i guess it's back to what you mentioned earlier which is you know when you're explaining it to people they don't they don't get it you almost try and find a few words or sentences that simplifies the situation but then they'll never get the full context of what it's like and and when you get people who do get close to understanding what you're trying to explain or how you're feeling it does feel rewarding because then you know, okay, they, they, they care about me and they do get it. They know I'm not, you know, um, making it all up, let's say. 
and I, I always like to compare you know saying when you go to the gym or if you like running or playing football i loved football i still love football but unfortunately i can't play um though i'll try walking football when i start feeling better after winter i guess somebody told me about that and anyway i do tell people you know when you do your favorite exercise or if you have a flu you know imagine combining all those uh feelings and effects of it now that's just the tip of the iceberg i don't know about you but when i tell people about what it when they ask me what fatigue is like i will always say to them it's like having the flu hung over a little bit of jet lag and then deciding to run with some bricks on your back and then wondering why you get halfway to the destination and ask why you can't why you don't feel well anymore but it's that type of exhaustion that you can't explain and because very few people have actually cuz they always say oh, I've had a flu no you didn't you had a cold flu is where you cannot pick yourself up to get out of bed because you feel so exhausted and so people know what that feeling's like but because they've never had that they don't some people have never had that they don't understand what it's like to live with me and i you know i've spoken to a lot of people over the years and i say oh, i know when you were having a flare up because you sort of buzz out and i'm like well yeah i'm glad you see it cuz that's how i feel for me I, i would just love to think that in 20 years time we're going to have a lot better understanding where patients and doctors will stop using chronic fatigue syndrome and go back to using me and it be described in the extent that it is because i don't think people understand the severity of it and i was saying to somebody today funny enough and i think we've touched on this before i hate the line no pain no gain because mm. i'm in pain every day and i'm still getting no gain from it so let's stop having that mentality of no pain no gain because so many patients not just me are living with a chronic pain condition that means that their lives are completely affected as a result but yet we all are portraying that you got to be in pain to win at some point it don't work like that unfortunately it's, it's really difficult yeah if there was something yeah you wanted somebody listening to this for them to take away today what would it be it's hard because as i said me doesn't have a face me is not just one end of the spectrum not every patient looks the same but anyone that is coming into and i remember a friend she recently got a chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis and i said to her don't think of this as the end don't think this is the start this is the middle because you are going to be told by numerous health professionals to either start an exercise plan which I wholeheartedly don't think you should do you're going to be told to go down CBT which again is personal preference you have to rewrite your own story and you're the main character in your own story you've now got time to restart the chapter that you started you know think of it as writing and you've now got to change the page you know you've got to change it for yourself whether that means starting to say no to things and i think that what we went back to earlier is saying no and don't feel guilty if somebody doesn't understand your health condition that's on them that's not your problem sometimes you know you still have the i i hate my illness and i do i wouldn't wish it on anyone really but don't be ashamed of living with something and i guess that's very telling even in the the writings that you do the cornerstone for thoughts i like that name <laughs> would you like to share more about that and anything else that you're working on I've written the cornerstone thoughts for years 
it started in 2015 and everyone laughs at the reason how it started but it did it started from when jeremy clarkson was involved in his facar i was very invested in that story i'm a huge uh, jeremy clarkson and richard hammond fan and i was doing a lot of commentary because everyone was like what do you think and i'm like, i'm not writing facebook faces we were gone from that so i was writing and i'd always wanted to write i loved writing and blogging at that time was coming up so everyone had a blog you know it was like buying a new pair of shoes and i set it up and i was writing and it went through different phases you know one week it was very commentary led one week it was what i bought what i wore then it went down the gluten-free route because at that time gluten-free cooking was horrendous because there wasn't as much variety as there is now and then yeah then my chronic illness came and my health stories came and it felt a very cathartic place to be i could write about my condition and let it out the way i wanted to in my own words i didn't have to fit in with something else i could write how i was feeling day to day and that's where the cornerstone for thoughts came a friend of mine said oh i thought it was very mythical i was i admired your strength where did you get the name from and it came actually from the arctic monkey song cornerstone because i read the lyrics and you know it was from my thoughts you know it was what i was writing about oh, wow. you know it was from me it wasn't from anything else it wasn't i don't guess right i don't let anyone come in it's just what i write and i feel like so you know that's where it came from wow that's amazing it's interesting to hear that so how can people find you or contact you yeah okay so i'm sure in the show notes if that's what's called i've listened to enough podcasts to know that line you can follow me on instagram at cornerstone thoughts or i'm on my website www.thecornerstonesalt.co.uk and i'd love you for you to come on by there's a contact page so if you do want to get in touch you can follow that route um and then we can have a chat really i'm all is i love hearing from different people and having a conversation i think my family are bored senseless of me talking about it and getting really frustrated by various articles and various lines in the press but you know we're getting a lot better from where we were and hopefully my writing my thoughts on that cornerstone will help someone else somewhere key highlight is the need to raise awareness to raise awareness of the complexity and day-to-day -day impact of me with your family friends neighbor community and as the new nice guidelines have showed change is possible even if it may take time to the newly diagnosed don't lose hope to those already living with me keep on inspiring others in your day-to-day -day management of me symptoms you can find evan on instagram at cornerstone for thoughts or her website www theconnerstoneforthoughts.co.uk If you'd like to get involved with the Silent Elephant project and talk to myself about living with or caring for someone with a life-limiting health condition, please get in touch with us through our social media at FresherBCIC or simply visit our website freshab.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. <laughs>